Hi, everyone. You are now listening to BCC Sermons. Thanks for tuning in. who was driving home from work one evening when he realized to his amazement that it was his daughter's birthday. And he had forgot about it, he'd forgotten to get her a gift, and so he made a quick beeline to the nearest toy store where he went in and he asked the sales assistant if he could take a look at the Barbies in the display case. And the assistant kind of looked over at him, he said, well, which Barbie did you want to see? He says, well, well, how much are they? And he said, well, you know, Barbie goes to the gym, sells for about $19.95. Barbie goes to the mall, oh, about $19.95. Barbie goes to the beach, $19.95. Barbie goes night clubbing, $19.95. And then he finally points to one and he says, that's divorced, Barbie, and she goes for $249.95. Obviously, the man was a little bit taken back by that. He says, listen, why is it that all these Barbies are going for $19.95, but divorced Barbies going for $299.95? Uh, and then the guy just kind of looked at him. He said, well, it should be obvious. Divorce Barbie comes with Ken's car, Ken's house, and Ken's furniture. <laughs> you know, life is about relationships. And truth be told, some of these relationships don't always go well. They don't always turn out the way we hoped that they would. And on the other side of that, to our surprise, sometimes relationships happen to work out just fine. You know, thankfully today, we're going to be talking about a relationship in Scripture that when we see it, we understand and we realize that it went really well. This morning, we're going to continue walking through our series called Two or More, and it's our hope that as we do, what we'll see is that God is really fond of mentoring relationships. That's why here at Bettendorf Christian Church, We've made relationships our priority. In fact, it's why we believe that discipleship happens best in the context of relationships. Last week, Pastor Derek, he he kicked this series off by looking at this relationship between Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Today, we're going to continue to look at another mentoring relationship in Scripture, uh, this time the relationship between the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Now, we're first introduced to the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 17. This is right where he declares that there's going to be a multi-year drought that would take place as a penalty for the evil things that the kings of Israel had been doing. Israel had been under a reigns of many evil kings and they'd kind of gotten away from the worship of the one true God. At this point in history, the Israelites, they're under the reign of this king named Ahab and he's married to this woman named Jezebel. And many of you are familiar with that name and we realize that Jezebel is probably one of the wickedest people ever recorded in all of scripture. King Ahab he had allowed his wife, Queen uh, Jezebel, to start reintroducing the worship of the satanic and the adulterous cult of Baal. It also could be pronounced Baal, but we're going to stick with Baal today, easier for myself to say. <laughs> but Baal was this Canaanite deity. And King David, 
during his reign as king, he had done away with the worship of Baal. He'd done away with the worship of a lot of these false idols. But since David's time, a lot of these false gods had started to be reintroduced, and that's exactly what Jezebel started to do with this worship of Baal. In fact, she had brought it back on a much larger scale than when David had had to deal with it. Baal was the most popular Canaanite god of the day because he was considered to be the god of fertility in all, spec, in all aspects of life, whether it be human life, animal life, even plant life. So production and prosperity in people's minds, they were dependent upon Baal. And so the cult of Baal, they were even known to sacrifice young children in order to receive this false god's blessing. Jezebel, she didn't want Baalism to have to coexist with the worship of the one true God of Yahweh, so she wanted to completely stamp it out altogether. So what she started doing was she started having God's prophets killed. And because of this, God, he instructed Elijah to go and to hide east of the Jordan River in this place called the Kareth Ravine. And during this time, God, he provided for Elijah. He provided a brook for him to drink from, even though they were in drought. The ravens, it said, would bring him food, both meat and bread, day and night. I guess the bird flu was no concern back then. <laughs> Later on, when that brook dried up, God actually sent him to this widow. And she was able to minister to him. He was able to minister to her. But her son eventually got sick and, and died. And this widow cries out to Elijah and call, or, you know, cries out to God. And Elijah, through the power of God, brings this son back to life. And then we see how God uses Elijah in the most incredible, mighty way on top of Mount Carmel to confront and have the ultimate showdown with the prophets of Baal. Now, we don't have time to get into this entire story this morning. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 18. I would encourage you to read that. But I want to give you some of the highlights because it's important as we continue this morning. As a reminder, remember, Baal is this false god, but he's the god that was said to have power. Power over the rain and power over the wind and power over the clouds. And therefore, he had power over fertility as well. He was worshipped as the weather god, the god of storm, the god of rain, and the god of good crops. So as you can see, this is very important to the background of what we're looking at in 1 Kings chapter um, 17 through 19. Remember, there's this three and a half year drought that is going on and he's supposed to be the god of weather. And now we have this confrontation on Mount Carmel and this is exactly what it sounds like when Elijah makes this challenge to these prophets of Baal. 1 Kings 18, verses 21 through 24, it says, And Elijah came near to all people, and he said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. Uh, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. 
And I will prepare the other bull and I will lay it on wood and put no fire to it. And then you, you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is very well spoken. So for those of you who are not familiar with this story, long story short, God shows up in a mighty big way. God sets fire to Elijah's altar, to his bull that had been sacrificed, even to the fact where he had poured, like Elijah's going hardcore, pours water all over it, and like really challenges them. Well, after this happens, you can imagine that the prophets of, of Baal, they're left disappointed. Their false god never shows up. Their false god never produces fire. And I think that's a strong thing for us to understand that false gods will always disappoint us. They will always let us down. So Elijah, what he does is he has these prophets of Baal captured. And then one of these surprising stories in all of Scripture, he then has all of them slaughtered because it shows us God doesn't want to deal with false worship. And so all these false prophets are slaughtered and because of that, Queen Jezebel, she gets really upset. So Queen Jezebel, she vows that she is going to track down Elijah and that she is going to have him killed as well. So you can imagine after these events, the highs of watching God do incredible things to the lows of now feeling like he's on the run for his life, we see signs of depression begin to set in on Elijah. We see him cry out to God with loneliness and with despair and maybe even a small touch of pride as he declares in 1 Kings 19, 14, he says, I have been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And I think there's a really important principle that we can take this morning, and it's this, that two are greater than one. That two are greater than one. I want you to think about it. God has worked in Elijah's life through his entire ministry, at least when we pick up the story. Elijah had spent his life serving God. He'd seen God perform many blessings and miracles in his life, but the truth of the matter is, he was alone. When he went into hiding at God's command, when he was camping out at the Kareth Ravine and the ravens were coming and they were feeding him, God was evidently there and God was providing for him and God was taking care of his needs. But Elijah was by himself. You know, when he took on the prophets of Baal, yes, God showed up in a mighty big way and did some incredibly awesome things, but there was no companion that came to Elijah's side. There was nobody who came to provide any kind of encouragement. He was flying solo here. And now as he's fleeing Jezebel and he's running for his life, he's hiding in this cave and he begins to bitterly lament about the loneliness he's experienced because of his devotion to God. He feels alone. 
He's completely worn out. He's discouraged and he's ready to give up. I mean, listen to his attitude we see in 1 Kings 9 verse, or 19 verse 4. He says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and he sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life for I'm no better than my father's. Listen, he's gotten to the point where he is ready for God just to end it. For God just to take his life from him. He's had enough. I mean, certainly he's not in a good place mentally, physically, spiritually. Have you ever been there? <laughs> I mean, I, I know I have. And I have to say this in the life that we are living, each and every one of us, I believe that the number one key for our survival in this life, in this world, is investing in relationships. I believe this account shows that everybody is going to need somebody sometime. Elijah had been bearing this burden on his own for way too long. And I truly believe this. And there's nothing wrong with putting our attention and putting our focus on God. Amen? That's where it should be. But I think there's times that that's the only place we put our focus. And what happens is we forget about people. You know, sadly, many of us, we try to navigate our lives in such a way where we try to do everything on our own. We don't let people in. And because of that, there's a lot of us this morning who are probably really struggling. We're lonely. We're following God, but if we're honest with ourselves, we're miserable because we keep trying to do it all on our own. And listen, that's not the way God created us. Listen, I'm going to be completely and and honest, uh, transparent in front of you this morning. I can completely relate to Elijah. I can completely understand what he's feeling here and, and what he's going through. Because there are many times that ministry can feel super lonely. You know, as a pastor, I've tried to do a lot of things on my own. I've tried to bear the burdens that come with ministry and I've tried to do it sometimes all by myself under my own power. And there have been times where I have felt burnt out. There's been times where just like Elijah, I said, listen, God, I've had enough. I'm ready to give up. God, let me do anything else but this. But that's not been God's plan. And I have to tell you, what has saved me. The reason I can still continue to do ministry after all these years is that I've learned how to lean in to other people. I just wish I had done it a whole lot sooner. You know, I'm so thankful for Pastor Derek and the other pastors on our staff. I'm thankful for our elders and I've learned how to lean into them. I've, I've learned how to vent my anger and frustrations. In fact, I sometimes say like I vomit my frustrations all over people. But I'm thankful I have a place where I can do it safely, a place where I can seek advice, a place where I can have people pray for me. You know, all throughout Scripture, we see the importance of relationships In the very beginning, when God created the world, he created everything, and Scripture tells us when he looked at everything he created, he said it was good. Everything but one thing. 
In Genesis 2.18, it says, Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone, so I will make a helper fit for him. Listen, God knew from the very beginning that it would not be good for us to be by ourselves, to be alone. He knew that we would need a helper. He knew that we would need somebody to walk beside us through the thick and thin of the things that go on in our life. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses uh, 9 through 12, it says that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You know, I think in our story this morning, I believe that God hears Elijah's cry. I believe he sees the pain he's in, and in this moment, God starts to orchestrate some events to bring some companionship, a friend, into his life. Because what happens is God reveals to Elijah that he's not alone. He says, in fact, there's 7,000 other faithful followers who believe that I'm the one true God. And then what he does is he commands Elijah to go to the town of Abel Mohalah and anoint a man by the name of Elisha to become a prophet. So let's check out Elisha now. In 1 Kings 19.19, 19, it says, So he, being Elijah, departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. So Elijah passed him and cast his cloak upon him. That's the introduction. <laughs> That's what we get. You know, when we see Elisha for the first time in scripture, there's nothing incredibly special about this guy. All we see is he's a dude who's out farming in a field. He's plowing. There's nothing glamorous. He's just shuffling along through the slow pace of life that he has always been used to. You know, he would wake up every morning and get dressed He'd get the plow, he'd drive the oxen, he'd probably cough up a little dust. He'd eat lunch, he'd drive the, the oxen some more, he'd cough up even more dust. He'd go wash up, get cleaned for dinner, he'd eat dinner, he'd go to bed, he'd wake up the next morning, and then he would just do it all over again. And I need you to hear me, there's nothing wrong with good hard work. I mean, we're in Iowa, there's a lot of farmers here. And there's also nothing wrong with consistency in our lifestyle. Listen, Elisha woke up every morning to consistent work, to consistent scenery, although it wouldn't have been that great behind the oxen. And more than likely, each morning, he woke up to these consistent smells of running the farm. He knew what consistency was. But then Elijah comes on the scene, and it changes everything about both of their lives. He comes by and he places his cloak onto Elisha's shoulders and simply put, we don't have time to get into a real long discussion about this this morning, but the cloak, it would have been fashioned out of wool. More than likely in this situation, it would have been made of animal skin. 
And the fact that Elijah took it and he placed it onto Elisha's shoulders, it meant that he had been chosen in this moment to be the successor of the most famous prophet in all of Israel's history. Man, that's some big shoes to fill. But Elisha understood the importance of what Elijah was doing. You see, not only was he being called to become a prophet, but I believe what it's doing is it's, complete, it's communicating an even higher message to Elisha. I think it's telling Elisha, Elisha, you weren't meant for this. You weren't meant to spend your days looking at the rear ends of oxen. I have something special for you. I have something greater for you. And I think that's something else that we can really see and understand in our text this morning is that others can encourage us to do God's greater. Let me explain what I mean by that. Sometimes other people see in us what we never see in ourselves. Last week, Pastor Derek, he he shared some of the mentors of his life with us. And I want to do the same thing this morning, because in my life, I've had a lot of people pour in and invest into my life. These names won't mean anything to you, but they mean the world to me. Cecil Ross and Kathy Evans and Dennis Stevens, these were people who were just youth volunteers at the church I went to when I was in middle and high school. People who just volunteered and poured into my life each and every Wednesday night or Sunday night in the summers when I would visit my dad. They were always helping me see the things that God saw in me, the greater things that I could never, ever see on my own. And then in college, I was fortunate enough to have a head resident in Atlanta Christian College, a guy by the name of Bob McGuire, And he's the first person to ever just sit me down and have a serious conversation and look at me and say, have you ever considered ministry? And at that point in my life, no, I hadn't. And so I'll never forget that moment. But clearly God was using him to point something out about my life that I had never seen or even thought about before. Then there was a guy by the name of Dwayne Hicks. He was a student pastor when I first got into student ministry. In fact, he was, he was a little bit older and wiser and Atlanta Christian College used him as an adjunct professor to come and teach all these student ministry classes. Well, we didn't live too far from the college together, so I just said, hey, can I catch a ride? Or hey, do you want to catch a ride with me? It was about a 40-minute drive and we would just spend that time talking about life and ministry. And I was very fortunate to just be able to pick his brain and he started to encourage me. In fact, when he decided to get out of student ministry, he's the one who told the church, hey, you need to hire this guy because I want him to be my own children's student pastor. He had spent time pouring into me, and now he felt like I could pour into his children. He saw something in me that it just I would never see in myself. All these people had a hand in shaping who I am today. And I hope as you sit here this morning and you, you hear this, I hope you could think of the spiritual mentors in your life that you can sit there and say, this person invested in me, this person shaped me. It might be your parents, it might be a grandparent, it might be somebody who was a part of this church and has since passed on. But I hope we all see that and we all have that. 
I think this is what God wants for all of us. I don't think, I know (laughs) this is what God wants for all of us. He wants all of us to leave the good behind in order to have the greater, the greater things that he has in store for us. And I truly believe that he uses the relationships that we're involved in to help us get there. So we continue reading in 1 Kings 19, 20 through 21, this account of this first meeting. It says he, it's talking about Elisha now, says he left his oxen and he ran after Elijah and he said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said to them, go back again for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and he took the yoke of oxen and he sacrificed them. And he boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and then he gave it to the people and they ate. And then he arose and he went after Elijah and he assisted him. Listen, there's something incredible that is taking place right here. Something completely amazing. You said, Barry, it doesn't sound like it, you know, sounds like we just had a bonfire roast. <laughs> Listen, I want you to understand something. Elisha just doesn't run after Elijah. What he does is he makes sure that there's nothing left for him to run back to. And so what does he do? He destroys and then he feeds his friends the animals that were his only means of making a living. And then he also burns the plows. And why this might seem really crazy or maybe even insane to some of us, Elijah is making a statement. I believe he's making a statement just as much for himself as he is for anybody else. And what he's saying is he's saying, I'm going to make this decisive break from this old life, from the source of my livelihood, from everything that represents the stability and the predictability of this life behind the plow. And I'm going to follow where God leads me. And I'm going to follow this mentor who's going to help me get there. I think this is an incredible sermon when it comes to talking about our devotion to God's calling in our life. But I also believe it shows the type of commitment that it really does take to be in a mentoring and discipling relationship. So here's the next point. Relationships take commitment. Relationships take commitment. Elisha's leaving behind everything to follow this man named Elijah and to be mentored by him. He's leaving his career, he's leaving his family, he's leaving everything that was ever comfortable, everything he ever knew. Listen, for us to get involved in that same type of mentoring relationship, I, I don't necessarily think it's going to cost us something that extreme. We're not going to go home and burn our pets. I hope. Don't burn your pets. If you get nothing else today, don't burn your pets. Listen, God's not going to ask us possibly to do something that extreme, but what I think is this. I think that as we get involved in any kind of relationship where God is going to use us, it's going to cost us something. That's what commitment does. Commitment will cost you something. It takes a commitment. And so our question really is, are you willing to commit? Are you willing to commit to this type of relationship, this specific type of a mentoring relationship? And listen, I get it. Sometimes it's just easier to get caught up in the daily grind of our life. Just like Elisha was before Elijah showed up on the scene, we we wake up and we go to work. We eat lunch and we do a little more work. We go home and then we take the kids off to all their activities. 
And then we come home and we make dinner and we are worn out. So we sit in front of the TV or we read a book or we get on our phones and we just start to scroll through everything. Truth of the matter is, many of us, we just want to be left alone. Truth? Man, it's hard. We have no desire to spend any more time with people or commit the kind of time it takes to build a relationship where this true mentoring and discipleship can begin to take place. And what happens truly for many of us is that we get caught up into the grind. We feel like we're in a rut, like we're settling for mediocrity. Maybe we begin to feel like something's missing in our life and maybe even loneliness and depression begin to creep in. We find ourselves staring at the rears of these metaphorical oxen and maybe it's time that we just burn the plows. Maybe it's time that we make that kind of commitment to get involved in a relationship where God can show us something better and greater in our life where people can invest and understand the true concept of two really being better than one, that we can't do it all on our own, that we need these relationships. As we continue to go through this account, we get to 2 Kings 2, 1 through 14, and if you're familiar with the story of Elijah, this is right before he's going to be drawn up into heaven, and that's what it says. It says, now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven, by a whirlwind, and let's just stop for a minute and think about how cool that would be. God, I know you're listening. That would be awesome. I'd, I'd love to go that way. <laughs> but it says, Elijah and Elisha were on their way to Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and they said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? So they had caught wind of this and now they're just making sure he's filled in. Thank you. He's been following him and he even says that. He's like, yeah, I know it. Keep quiet. You know, I, lo I love it. He says, shut up. All right. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho, and the sons of the prophets who were in Jericho drew up near to Elisha and said to him, hey, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. <laughs> and then Elijah said to him, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on, and 50 men and the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they were both standing by the Jordan. And then Elijah took off his cloak, and he rolled it up, and he struck the water. And the water was parted to one side and to the other until the two men, or the two of them, could go over on dry ground. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken away from you. And Elisha said, please. Let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And, and this is what I think we can focus in on here in this passage. That so much can be learned by observing the life of another. 
that so much can be learned by observing the life of another. I, I hope you noticed this, but when Elijah asks Elisha what he can do for him, Elisha asks for a blessing, in fact, a double portion of Elijah's spirit to fill him. Man, I can just picture as they've walked together and they've done life together and Elisha has witnessed everything in Elijah's life. He said, man, I want that. I want that. He saw the spirit of God moving in him so strongly. He said, I don't just want what he has. I want like a double portion of it. And I think that's amazing. And what I want us to think about is this. Like I said, so much can be learned by observing the life of another. We can learn from their habits and their disciplines. We can learn how they relate to other people. We can even learn from their faults and from their weaknesses. And so do you have an Elijah in your life? Do you have somebody you know who is walking such a spirit-filled life that you can look at them and say, man, I want a part of that. I want to have that in my life. And man, I want, God, just pour that into me because I I don't just want to be like that person. I want double of what that person has. Do you have that type of person in your life, somebody that is walking a spirit-filled life with you? You know, what are the qualifications you see in them? What do you want to gain from them? Have you spent time learning from them, letting them invest in you? Have you experienced God with one another? Have you done God things together? Listen, I know I've looked for these Elijahs in my life. And many times they've been found in the lead pastors that I've had the opportunity to work with. Carl Strange and David Terrell and Tim Scott and now Derek Armstrong. I've learned a lot of valuable things from each and every one of these men. And I believe it has shaped me into who I am today. Carl, Carl was a go-getter. He taught me how to get things done. He taught me how to do it 100% and to always be prepared in everything I did. And it's something that I've followed for 25 years. David, he's literally the wisest man I've ever known. He's also my father-in-law and he's taught me a lot. The biggest thing he taught me was to be slow to speak. Believe it or not, I once had just this uh, way of letting my mouth uh, get the better of things. Uh, Michelle would probably say I still do. (laughs) He also showed me the importance of loving my family and just like the Covers were talking about, he showed me how to prioritize my time in ministry so my family never got left behind. You know, Tim... Tim Scott, he told me how to be passionate about other people. You know, he had such a big heart. And I've been able to look at his life and say, God, I want that too. I want that too, and it's something I pray for. And Derek, he's, he's an incredible leader. God has blessed him with leadership, and I believe I'm learning the keys of how to better lead others by working with him. You know, I think it's also worth noting here that once again, we see this level of Elisha's commitment to his relationship with Elijah three times. I hope you notice that. Three times Elijah asks Elijah to stay put. And each time, Elisha responds, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. Oh, to have that type of a friendship. To have that kind of a relationship where our friends would never 
leave us or abandon us or desert us. And I hope and I pray that you have those type of relationships in your life. The final passage I want to read, we're just going to kind of finish this up. 2 Kings 2, 11 through 14. And as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, which means it gets the portion. And he cried out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. And he saw them no more. And then he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in two. And then he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him. And he went back and he stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and he struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he struck the water, the water was parted, to one to the one side and one to the other. And Elisha went over it. And there's a lot of significance that just happened there. And we have a really short time. But I hope you notice that right after Elijah's taken up into heaven, the first thing Elisha does after he kind of goes into a little bit of despair, rips his clothes, there's a lot of significance there, can't get into all of it. But he goes in, he picks up Elijah's cloak, and then he strikes the water with it. And it's important that we not miss what's happening here, and so please listen. So looming before Elisha now is this Jordan River. They've crossed over it, God has taken him to that side. What this Jordan River now is doing is it's standing as a barrier to his entrance back into the land where the other prophets were waiting for his leadership. I think it's interesting that before he begins his ministry now, God puts Elisha on this side of the Jordan, meaning he's going to have to come back through it. So historically and biblically, I want you to understand this. The Jordan River was representative of the barriers of the prof, uh, and the problems of life which would stand in the way of Elisha in his ministry. So when he comes in and he strikes that water, essentially what he's saying is this. He's demonstrating his faith. He's demonstrating his faith in the power and the provision that God is going to provide and take care of him. And it's also his willingness and determination to fulfill the calling and the ministry to which God called him. I think the cool thing about the cloak didn't mention this earlier, but the cloak was also called a mantle. So when we talk about picking up the mantle, uh, this is where this saying comes from. This picking up or the taking up of the mantle, it comes from this and it means to assume another person's role. And this is exactly what Elisha did. From the moment he picks up the cloak, the moment he strikes the water, God would indeed use him in a mighty, incredible way. You know, Elisha would go on to do twice as many miracles as his predecessor. Double the portion, right? And this is really the point of this morning's message. It's our BCC big idea today that we must pass the mantle to the next generation. Earlier on, I talked about Cecil Ross and Cecil's always meant a lot to me. I I met Cecil for the first time when I was in elementary school. Cecil was a missionary over in Zimbabwe, Africa. And I just remember he had the coolest stories that sometimes only a missionary can have, right? And so he was back, he was visiting the church and my parents asked him out to lunch with us and we went and ate at the Sizzler. I don't know if you're familiar with the Sizzler or not, but that's how much this meant to me. I still remember going to Sizzler, which doesn't even hardly exist anymore, I don't think. 
Later on in life, as I got older, Cecil came home from the mission field. And although Cecil wasn't as cool when I was a junior high student, right, or even a high school student, I still remember the moments he would invite us to his house and we'd go over and hang out. And listen, Cecil didn't do anything crazy or extreme. He just opened up his door and said, come hang out. And we went, we played Monopoly and we had risk tournaments and we did all sorts of cool things. And I'll never forget as I got into college, I, I was playing basketball collegiately at Atlanta Christian College and I remember looking over and seeing Cecil in the crowd. I didn't even invite the guy. He just heard about the game and he showed up because that was Cecil. Listen, Cecil passed away many years ago. But every year around the anniversary of his passing, Facebook just explodes with pictures of Cecil. And people just talking about the kingdom impact that Cecil had on their lives. And it's just so cool to share those stories and be encouraged and reminded that Cecil passed the mantle. He passed it to me and he passed it to dozens, if not hundreds, of other people. They've been affected because of his life. And to be honest, many of the things that I've done through 25 years of student ministry, I learned from Cecil. You know, our vision here at BCC is to connect people in the Quad Cities to a transforming relationship with Jesus and to grow through finding belonging in a healthy, authentic church community that is known for how we serve one another and others to impact every generation beyond our lifetime. That's what Cecil did. To be honest, because his influence in my life, that's what I want to do. I hope you've thought of somebody that has poured into you because that's our hope and that's our desire. We want to pass the mantle to the next generation. And so will you join us? Will you join us in that? As I close, I, I want to pray a portion of a prayer that I read in a book written by Stephen Furtick. I think some of you might be familiar with him. He wrote a book called Greater and he's actually addressing Elisha and the striking of the water with the cloak that we've talked about. He uses this as a starting point for his prayer. And I want this to be my prayer for all of us today. He says this, I pray that you will strike the water where you live. I pray that you will no longer settle for good enough in your closest relationships, existing together, but not really engaging each other. I pray that where you may have settled into patterns of comfort, busyness, and mundane living, that you will exchange all of that for a greater dream of seeing the glory of God displayed where you live. I pray that the monotonous drone that can come from living together as a family will be replaced by the passionate cadence of a family that follows God together. I pray that you won't settle for raising good boys and girls who don't get on your nerves or interfere with your dreams, but who are world changers that change after, chase after God's dream for them. Amen? Listen, the mantle is yours. It's yours. Are you ready to pick it up and run with it? Thanks again for tuning in online. Our in-person service times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. every Sunday. To learn more about BCC, visit us at bettendorfcc.com.
Have a great day.